Partially Examined Life relies on your support. To find out how to help in ways that are cheap or even free for you, check out partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 172 is something like, what is involved in the psychology of fully recognizing the existence of other minds? We are pleased to be joined by radio legend Dr. Drew Pinsky to discuss the issue, drawing on some papers he recommended to us, Attachment and Reflective Function, Their Role in Self-Organization, by Peter Fonagy and Mary Target, 1997, and Attachment and the Regulation of the Right Brain and Right Brain Affect Regulation, both by Alan and Shore from 2000 and 2009, respectively. For more information, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, about to engage in dysregulating intersubjective contact in Madison, Wisconsin. Wow. This is Wes Allwan, still diligently trying to organize my attachments in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey, reflecting on my mental modules in Middleton, Wisconsin. And this is Drew Pinsky being thrown in to PEL. Welcome, <laughs> Dr. Drew. Welcome. Thank you. As I said, the, the only word that keeps ringing in my head is Gevorfenheit, and I don't mean Gesundheit. So Gevorfenheit, Drew, that's uh, thrownness. Thrownness, or thrown in, right? At least that's the way Seth defined it last time I heard him use it. That's Heidegger, right? Yeah. I feel thrown into this experience. If I were thrown into the Pacific Ocean, I'd be less anxious than I am today <laughs> because I'm huge fans of the Partially Examined Life. I'm fans of all three of you, and I won't leave Seth out either. I'm a fan of his too. And uh, I found you guys fishing around in the podcast world and felt like I really uh, hit gold with you guys. In preparation for this, I uh, listened to your guys, Hegel, Levinas, Buber, and uh, Sartre episodes oh over and over and over again, trying to <laughs> understand. And to make matters worse, I may have had this brilliant idea of having a Lasix procedure. I couldn't have a Lasix because my corneas are thin, so I ended up getting something called a PRK, formerly known as a radial keratotomy, where they pull off your cornea. And I've been unable to read for two weeks. My first reading was yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my oh, God. Yeah. So, but I was able to listen. And so I listened to your guys' wonderful podcast and had a great time with that. And really had some interesting thoughts about uh, what you guys were talking about there. Well, thank you. I think you got your revenge on us in terms of a specialized language in these Alan Shore articles in particular. I was reading particular sentences aloud to my wife. And she's just like, no, I'll have none of that. <laughs> <laughs> And then Wes kindly came on my podcast, the Dr. Drew podcast, and uh, Dylan and Mark, I want you to know that he um, sort of ruined philosophy for everybody because I, I went... I go, <laughs> we Wes. think that too all the time, Dr. Drew. Yeah. I, said, I said, Wes, you know, let's expose my audience to what philosophy is supposed to do. He goes, well, you know, it's about ethics, about politics, and, but really it's about what kind of life you should lead, the good life, you know, what's the right kind of life to lead. And I go, so Wes, what is that? And he goes, I have no idea. I go, okay, well, the entire project is completely ruined. Thank you for doing that. No, I gave you an answer. I said, just having things to do. That, that was my answer. That's the key to a good life. Yeah. And I mean that. <laughs> I think that one can deepen that answer, but yeah. We finally agreed it was work, love, and play, right? We went back to Dr. Freud. Well, we were very surprised and thrilled to get your email out of the blue. Wes was, is this the real Dr. Drew? Let's, let me check. I think this is the real Dr. Drew. Is this <laughs> somebody? I was equally as uh, giddy that you guys responded, and here we are. Yes, with an interesting topic here. So we often just pick a text and kind of say, what does this say? But this is a little more topic-oriented one. This idea of theory of mind, which sounds like a philosophy topic, 
but it's really a psychology topic that how do infants get the idea that other people have intentions and goals, etc. So it's kind of related to the Cartesian topic of can we doubt that other people exist? Can we be reasonably solipsist? Well, psychologically, unless you are severely screwed up, no, you can't because it's the foundation. It's one of the cornerstones of development. It seems to develop as naturally as language does. Although there may be just like you could have language impairments. If nobody talks to you for the first bunch of years of your life, you could also have impairments in this area. And I think we're going to start out by concentrating on the Fonagy paper attachment and reflective function. The question for that paper, in a way, is really how we construct a self for ourselves. And that process will involve being able to develop what he calls reflective function, which we'll define more carefully soon. But as Marcus said, being able to understand that other people have intentions and more than that, that they are aware of our own intentionality, that they're aware that we know that they know that we have intentions, which rises to the level of understanding that people have beliefs and desires and so on and so forth. And that ability is critical even to self-awareness, even to thinking of myself as a self or developing a self-consciousness. So I just thought I would throw that in there because that actually is the way Fonagy starts out the paper. He's interested in that question of how we construct a self for ourselves. And that turns out to be critically related to reflective function, which turns out to be critically related to early interactions between an infant and caregiver. I heard a rumor that Fonagy actually had studied philosophy. and If you notice in the opening yeah. paragraphs, he talks about the intentional stance. And I think that is an echo of his philosophical heritage. Full disclosure, I know Alan Shore personally and have shared a podium with him at one time. And his stuff is very biological, and that's why it kind of got a little soupy, I'm sure, for everybody. But Fonagy really does sort of come close to working out some of the things that several philosophers were messing with. And much to my surprise, the one that came sort of closest, at least as you guys were reading it, was Hegel, in the sense that the other was the critical ontological ingredient to prevent the tautology of I, 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 or I am. And to that sort of end, I want us to be really careful to define our terms because, again, as I listen to your guys' stuff, there's a lot of talk about consciousness and self-consciousness, but then no definition of self, and then there's the I and the me and the I am and the person and the ego and the my and the mind, and each of these things, in my opinion, are different. And I want us to be really careful about defining those things, and I think it'll help us define the ontological landscape in addition to the psychological landscape. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, although I want to throw out a general methodological thing in response to that, that I think a lot of people approach philosophy and say, you know, to start off, you have to give definitions of all the terms you're going to use. And it is true, we need to be clear about how we're using the term with respect to a particular author. But that's, I think, as far as we can generally go, as far as a preliminary matter in defining terms is, how does this author define the I versus the me? Because figuring out a generally applicable definition for those things. Well, that's the whole task of philosophy. You can't just do that right off the bat. That's kind of what hopefully, eventually, you probably don't reach. (laughs) Yeah, let me fall on my sword. I mean, it's my confusion I'm addressing, right? Because I come with these preconceived ideas about what these terms mean, and then I'm trying to figure out what this or that philosopher is saying, and then I'm trying to figure out ontology generally, and it gets confusing. Just following on Mark's comment that we 
basically just try to say what we mean. And so when we come up to these definitions, maybe the best we can do is try to articulate what we mean or what we think that this philosopher means or this paper is saying on this particular idea and parse it out into its individual pieces. We might not come to any conclusion ultimately about the bigger part of it, but we'll at least be able to follow the conversation so that we can agree which pieces we're talking about. The reason I brought it up now is because the word self has already come up, and I thought, mm, I'm not sure what that means here. That might be sort of the whole topic of this podcast, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Let me read something just from near the beginning of the paper. So he actually does start by trying to define terms. Psychological interest in the self is usually traced to James, William James, distinction of two aspects of the self, the I, self as subject, and the me, self as object. The I is an active agent responsible for constructing the self-concept of me. To paraphrase in terms of current cognitive neuroscience, the me is the mental representation while the I embodies the mental processes or functions which underpin representations of the self. And this is very similar to a distinction we saw in the Sartre. Yep. The difference being that Sartre is unapologetically being phenomenological. That's his whole method. So he's describing experience. So he's saying that there's this idea of my character over time. Who am I really? Well, that's one thing. And the Buddhist might even ask, well, come on, that's not really you or something like that. But then there's also maybe, and this is kind of the thing that Sartre is arguing about, the I, the thing that unifies experience in the first place that makes this perception and that perception and is the doing. And so Sartre's whole puzzle is, is that I, which Kant had called the transcendental ego, is that a real thing? Whereas this jumps immediately from Well, it's the active agent responsible for constructing the self-concept of me. In other words, gives a causal account. So it's not talking about phenomenologically, is there a separate part that is the thinker of the thoughts, and then there's the character that is built up over time and referred to as me and that other people point at as me because they can't see the eye. They can't see the magic thing behind my eyes. But I think it's a real question. Can you take that directly to a causal mechanistic distinction between the two types of things and say, well, there's certain brain processes that cause thoughts, and then there's a different representation that is built up in the brain in some different way, and that's the me. Yeah, we're thinking about the difference between the I as a set of functions, including the function just of being conscious of things, which is by itself something kind of bare and undifferentiated. It doesn't say anything about me in particular, Wes, as a character, and then there's personal me, and then there's the representation of that personal me to myself. So if we think of the I as subject, we're thinking of something more abstract, more general. We're thinking about something like the Lockean bare consciousness that's unified through time. And then once we drill down into actual self-consciousness, representations of myself, personal qualities, I think we're at the level of me. Well, but isn't there an aspect where the me then reflects on the I as well? Well, Yeah, I think if we think of, so if if me is a representation and we have these things, you know, it'll turn out the Fanagi will talk about working models. We have a bunch of self-representations and we don't always have them in mind, right? They could be unconscious or really tacit and they will shape the way I look at the world and then in turn shape the way I look at myself. So I think Dylan, is that what you're getting at? Yeah, so I guess I take the distinction here between I and me is what you just described as 
the entity or the thing or whatever it is we decided that is the subject and the one that is the object. And what's nice about this reflective function is it's allowing us a way to talk about the back and forth between those things. But does the me actually do anything? I even, I'm not sure if I like what Wes was just saying about how the me affects how we see things. Like, it seems like the I is supposedly the thing that's doing the seeing. This is at least still running with Sartre's distinction. The me is purely an object. It doesn't do anything. No, but it's a, there's a feedback loop. We develop these representations, and then the representations become a, not a filter, but in a broader sense, a theory by which we interpret new data. Right, so not a filter. I guess that's the thing. A filter would be more like Kant's, you know, there are things in the mind that determine... They become procedural and emotional memories as part of it. Templates they talk about. Templates. But there's a way in which the subjects become objects themselves, and the objects become subjects themselves. I know that's too abstract, but I think that's the kind of problem that the language of reflective function is trying to get around, right? That the distinction between me and I is not so clear for the whole reason we've been talking about it for the past 10 minutes, right? And so we have to get over that strict subject-object distinction and acknowledging this feedback loop that Wes just talked about, that what is me affects what is I. I'm not being very precise here, but I think that it will help us to just get into Vonnegut's structure. Is it worth talking about subjectivity and consciousness at this point? Well, I would say maybe not, because he's trying to just jump straight to the eye is a causal mechanism. So he's not actually concerned with the phenomenology involved. And the phenomenology is where, again, consciousness is another one of those terms that seems to beg definition. But the way that Sartre is talking about it is between consciousness and then self-consciousness, consciousness of self, is something in the phenomenological realm. Whereas when Fonagy is talking about it, it's simply awareness that something is going on. So it's a much less philosophically problematic notion because it's just kind of bypassing any question about the relation of my awareness of your having something to this fundamental phenomenological notion of subjectivity. The thing that people are worried about when they say, how could minds emerge out of matter or something is, how could there be this fundamental experience that we have? The thing that Descartes was pointing to that all the subsequent phenomenologists were pointing to of consciousness in that sense. If we just say, we're not going to do that sort of navel-gazing, introspective psychology, we're way beyond that. We're just going to talk about, I don't know, what's the alternative functional connections between different individuals? I mean, that's the way that Shore ends up talking, that the attention that the mother and the child bestow upon each other creates this interpersonal feedback loop where the mother is regulating the child's what is it, not enthusiasm level? Well, his arousal levels. Arousal level, yes. That's the attachment function. But Shore would argue that the self emerges in that process of regulation. That one of the core self functions is attentional mechanisms, executive function, and then regulation. And let me just show all my cards. I believe consciousness and self both emerge in an intersubjective context. That's why I'm so fascinated by this material. I don't believe there is a self without another, and I don't believe consciousness in the sense that it's commonly understood, particularly self-consciousness, can emerge without the other. And that's sort of, again, what Hegel was tilting at a little bit, not with the kind of mechanistic qualities that Fonagy's getting into here. And 
When you read the Fonagy article, I've heard him speak a few times too. I don't know Fonagy, but I'm an enthusiast. And part of what he's talking about in reflective function that's not so clear from the article is the biology of how we communicate nonverbally and how that has a very deep impact on our trajectory of theory of minds. If we're talking about the emergence of self-consciousness and the ability, this reflective function, the ability to attribute consciousness to others or intentional states to others, that has to sort of emerge out of something non-mentalistic and pre-symbolic, right? We're sort of, it's a difficult subject because we want to sort of say how these things come about, but then we have to start with something that doesn't rise to that level. One of the interesting things Fonagy does is when he's talking about the acquisition of reflective function is he, you know, if you remember, he talks about this ability to look at other people's behaviors in terms of teleology. It's pre-symbolic, it's non-mentalistic. So for instance, if you show a child the age of six months an animation in which they're doing sort of people like things, there's implicit intentions and goals, and there's sort of rational things to do and irrational things to do based on the implied goals and restraints. If one of those animations, and it doesn't have to look like a human being, it could just be, you know, a blob, but it's being animated in such a way as to seem like it has intentions. If it does something irrational, the child of six months will be surprised. So even though they're not able to represent all this stuff linguistically, there's still some sense in which they are already attuned to a theory of mind at the teleological level. They already understand that other people have goals and intentions and so on. And then reflective function comes about basically when they have a teleology about the other, let's say the caregivers, teleology towards them. Reflective function comes about when they understand that other people's intentions involve seeing their intentions. And then that ultimately will give them a vocabulary for talking about their own emotions, their own intentions, but it brings the teleological to the level of mentalization. So one of the ways that's distinguished is that once reflective function is present, infants can pass something called the false belief task. So you have the infant watching you with puppets. Well, maybe someone else should describe this. Drew, do you want to do it? I'll go back to the paper. And he says, principle of rational action, he calls it, the teleological stance is applied by infants to humans and non-humans alike. You guys ever see the research on Kiki and Bobo? They go, which one's Kiki? And it's a speculated, everyone points at the speculated uh, object, and Bobo is this kind of blob. And uh, people, for whatever reason, automatically go towards those sorts of names applied to those particular images. In any teleological models, however, evolve into mentalizing ones in the restricted domain of human action. They become fully mentalizing once representations of goal states come to be thought of as desires. So now we go inside. So we go from teleology to insides. This language of teleology confused me a little bit because I thought it was explicitly goal-oriented, but it really amounts to having a kind of predictive model. And in this case, before it becomes mental expectations regarding the activities of other minds, it's just expectations for how something will happen. But it's expectations specifically involving a reference to goals or intentions. Rational action. Because it's not just an expectation like if I hit the billiard ball in a certain way, it's going to do X. It's the infant will have expectations based on its attribution. Yeah, right. If I touch the hot thing, then it will burn me. How about that? It's not that. 
The example given in the paper and that Wes articulated was you have some animated objects and they're moving in a certain way. And there'll be cases where their behavior makes sense and there'll be cases where that behavior is surprising. And the interpretation of it being surprising is that it's not behaving according to the teleological model that the infant has. According to an implied goal. In the scene, there's an implied goal for those blobs, let's say. and then Well, okay, and so this is what I mean, is that whatever's implied there, the whole weight of that implication is in the child, right? Whatever is going on, I don't know if you want to call it a model, you want to call it a intuition, or whatever it is, all of that's going on inside them, such that it comports with their expectation or it surprises them. And to me, the force of those experiments is that they have that expectation. And then the next step is that those kinds of expectations, those kinds of model making, that kind of construction of behaviors extends to other rational entities, not just animated objects or objects that are moving around in the world. And it does strike me that it's actually very similar to the expectations of causality of the sort that you just mentioned of hitting a ball or getting your hand burned or any of these other things, that it's a expectation of a certain result that's based upon some implicit causality going on, implicit understanding of causality. The difference is, you know, if we had a scene in which the movement of the billiard ball violated our expectation, it would violate it with respect to our past experience that has given us like a, a model of how things should bounce off each other. It's sort of a intuitive sense of the physics of it. But in the teleological case, the laws at stake the regularities at stake are not just these, let's say, physical laws. They have to involve rules about how goal-oriented beings will behave given certain constraints and goals and so on. So that's the teleological part of it. It's an implicit reference to the goal-orientedness of something else, and there's no goal-orientedness in the billiard balls. But it's introduced that it's mm. supposed to fall short of having a full theory of mind. It does, right, exactly. The theory of mind involves not just goals, but desires and intentions and things like that. So I think we're just stumbling over the difference between that of like why teleological is a lower form, since that's not a normal use of teleological according to our past uses. And I think that it is more about seeing regularities so that if you see a blue square that it just bounces up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down no and then see, the, I, amazingly it moves to the side isn't that one of the things in the experiment no that kind of thing to say after the child sees it bouncing up and down it's kind of like well that's what it does that's what it likes to do and then if it moves somewhere else then it's surprising not just because it's violating the normal causal expectation but because we have attributed like drew was saying we have imputed purpose on this obviously inanimate thing obviously maybe for the yeah. very small child it's not obvious in that way so i guess maybe this is a question for drew or did we notice like do adults even have that sort of you know we curse at the computer the computer is stymieing me we tend to apply these teleological things to inanimate objects but would we want to describe our perception of that ball or the thing on the screen in that case with adults as thinking of it as teleological we at very least make narrative, and that narrative has a teleological kind of quality to it. It's not as primitive as what they're suggesting in children who really are just have an expectation based on the expectation of how humans or objects behave. It's disappointed or it's altered in some surprising way, and they react to it 
long before they should understand that is really what the research shows. Just that there's something constitutional, hardwired, however you want to call it, that gives us a teleological stance. In fact, Fonagy talks, he didn't really talk about it much in this paper, but I've heard him speak about something he called contingency monitoring. That it really, as much as anything, is about contingency in the world. And that we end up, we're initially totally preoccupied with 100% contingency. So we're interested in our pooing and our peeing, things that are contingent on our body. And at about six months of age, he said there's something like a 96% conditional probability that we get preoccupied with. We start looking at things that when we hit the mobile, the mobile moves. And now we're interested in that. And that's where we start building, I think he would say, our teleological expectation. So it's teleological even though I'm the one causing the action? I don't know what to do with this because I think we're, you know, in a philosophical realm talking about teleology just meaning as an ends. It's movement towards yeah. an expected ends. And that's not really the term you're used to using, I don't think. Yeah, and it sounds like it's exploring of causality. And it could be within the physical world, that's one way, but it seems to me it ends up having the direct extension into individual minds. And I understand now much better the way in which it's being used as a step in this context where it's sort of a primitive form or a precursor to this reflective function. It seems to me that it's pointing to sort of a deep activity that probably is rooted in our biology of being able to do these kinds of activities of just anticipating things in the world that has to do with figuring things out. Let me just reiterate my disagreement here and then we can move on from it. But I think the teleological stance cannot just involve seeing causal regularities. And so I'll just Read from page 682 first. Interactions at this stage may be argued to be pre-symbolic in the sense that they are non-mentalistic. The infant is not required to represent the thoughts or feelings of the caregiver. However, they involve reference to future states, such as goals, as explanatory constructs in the interpretation of the behavior of the other. Thus, they can be used to predict behavior, although these structures would be limited in their capacity to modify behavior. Just going down a little bit, the infant's perception of social contingencies by the second half of the first year is teleological in that they make reference to future states, goals, as explanatory entities in the interpretation of behavior based on the principle of rational action. Supplied by infants to human and non-human objects alike, surprise when non-human but moving objects appear to act irrationally, not choosing the optimal action given specific goals and reality constraints. You know, this has to be beyond causal regularity. I completely agree, Wes. It just, to me, it links, it's like the step beyond that, right? That its roots are in that. Yeah, so it's not fully making these references to representations of, oh, that person has a belief, oh, that person has a desire. It's the pre-symbolic, non-mentalizing foundation for that. And actually, we'll get at how the way Fonagy describes the way one evolves into the other is amazing, I think. Well, I think this just shows that the traditional Aristotelian notion of teleology as applies to physics is something that's psychologically natural. That in other words, we see a regularity. The regularity question is, you know, I push on my toy and it falls down. And so things fall down. We might not say they want to fall down. They have a desire to fall down. We might not go that far, but just looking at physical regularities in terms of the purposes that inanimate objects have, even if we don't imply on purpose the notion that, well, when I have a purpose, I might sit down and think about my purpose. You know, it's not that kind of full-blown conscious purpose, but that thinking of things as purposive is just hardwired. 
I'll tell you, Mark, that exactly the language you used is used all the time by at least physicists, the ones that I work with. You would explicitly talk about the energy state of the atom wants to be lower. Feynman famously thought about his theories in terms of trying to think about what the electron wants to do. You really think about it objectively. It's bizarre that we do that. I mean, (laughs) we talk about atoms and things, but it is. You know, I was trained in biology and chemistry, and explicitly the language was always that way. Yes. It is bizarre on the one hand, but again, I agree with Wes's clarification about the way teleology is used, that it doesn't go all the way back to causality. But it does seem to me that the notion of cause and the notion of agency are going to be really related for us. And so attributing agency and animation to something that is moving and having cause on us and on the world and it having a identity that's similar to our own notion of our own self causes seems to me maybe not surprising as somehow hardwired in our way that we perceive change that the notion of change that there is a source of that change and that source of that change is active in some way well and the importance of the overall story in case it feels like to some people we've gotten lost in the weeds here is we start out as babies just doing stuff It's not like we're thinking about our goals, but that our parents (laughs) treat us as if what we're doing is purposive. And then you kind of get the idea that your parents have goals and purposes. As part of the same process, you get the idea that you yourself have goals and purposes. Goals and purposes are not things that you just introspect and there they are and they've always been there. Like this is part of the self. I don't want to say a social construction, but it's a construction developmentally that we need some help with. And let me refine that a little more and say, but before there's even that, the child learns, minds have content, and my mom appreciates that my mind has content. They would say that's the first step. Right. So this whole thing about affect and even being able to talk about the fact that we have emotions or label emotions or be aware of those emotions as emotions involves this relationship to the mother or another caregiver. To get to the point where you can say, I feel X, you have to first see something in the response of the caregiver to one's behavior and raw affect. That's a critical role in moving from simply having raw affect to being able to think about it. This is why that I, me stuff had such meaning at the outset. In sort of broad strokes, what he would say is that we enter life awash in primary emotional states. They just wash over us and they come upon us, but we have no ability to name them, reflect upon them, or regulate them. It's only when we are scrutinized by others that that process is initiated. And this is the sense in which the mother's you know, face sort of serves as a mirror. The mirror thing, I, w- I want to caution against that because there's a lot of enthusiasm about mirror and mirror neurons. I think there's something far more complicated going on than just mirroring. What he talks about is that mirroring would reflect maybe even a contagion, right? Yeah, she can mirror it back in its raw form. She has to modify it. And- right, and, and exaggerate it or make it a pretend thing. You know, I've worked a lot in this area and really watch what people do. And it's remarkable how subtle the changes are on their, on particularly mom's faces when they approach a child to explore the contents of that child's mind. It's, it's unbelievable. And they're not aware they do it. It's well beneath any kind of conscious thing. They can kind of call it the consciousness, but it's hard for them. I actually ask them to engage in an interaction, and I'll say, did you see what happened? Like, no, no idea that, that they had just done that. Again, that's why the shore stuff had relevance, because he works out some of the biology of how that goes down. What's a good example? An example or an image, the baby is upset, the mother could just approach and just be upset 
because the baby's upset. And that would be mirroring back, but that's not quite the right kind of mirroring back. They would have to be mirroring back in a way that shows that they can cope. That's contagion. Child needs mom to be upset when the child's upset? No, child needs the opposite. The child needs an appreciation. So the mom's face becomes a second order representation of the child's primary emotional states in which it is awash. And this is a right brain to right brain communication that helps the child identify affect, identify self literally in the face of the other. And then the mom offers soothing affects alongside of that to help regulate. It also encourages attentionality. The mom and the baby are focused on each other's faces. Yeah, so what's in her face? It's not like she's completely denying the distress of the infant. That wouldn't be good either. There has to be some acknowledgement of that, but there has to be something accompanying that. It has to be modulated in some way where there's that the infant gets a sense of it's okay or this can be regulated, this can be coped with what Fonagy will call a sort of coping signal. Yes, this is distressing, but something can be done about this. I think that's part of what's being communicated. It seems like there's both the child is able to recognize and give some of the tools for understanding their own experience, but also that coping stuff provides agency. You get the way to deal with it as well as the way to understand it. Be careful with rational sorts of constructs for these because they're sort of bodily-based experiences. To say a way to understand already suggests a cognitive element to this, which there is, and there's later in life a language piece that gets superimposed. But early on, it is really, strictly speaking, bodily-based regulation. Or non-symbolic. I mean, it makes me think of what we were talking about earlier, that there's something about our biology that's enabling these things, right? And that's pre-symbolic, pre-language, but I still want to call it a rational structure. That's why there was some, Wilford Sellers was brought up here, uh, at least name dropped a few times, and it made me think a lot about his insistence that pre-linguistically, the way we were working has these rational components to it. It's not that everything is like soup to nuts, front to back in a rational uh, continuum, but it involves rational constructs. I remember your enthusiasm for Sellers too. You've thrown out, Drew, the right brain to right brain communication. I think we should explain a little bit of that, even though that's jumping to the shore paper. Just the idea that our interactions with other people are in these very early developmental stages and really throughout. And so a lot of the point of the paper, this right brain affect regulation paper is to counsel therapists on how to deal with their clients. But it is subliminal, is sort of body to body, gaze to gaze. It's not a matter of thinking what is wrong with this child or what is wrong with this patient and then coming up with a rational response to their dilemma and then either telling them that or manipulating them into recognizing that their self, that there actually has to be something spontaneous both in the mother and the therapist, the mother dealing with the child or the therapist dealing with the uh, patient, that they have to react authentically, which is, of course, something mothers hopefully do. But, you know, this is kind of big news maybe for doctors. There has to be an emotional communication. There has to be something at the level of affect rather than something conscious and rational and cognitive. It's why I thought the boober was relevant, because he's the one that really went at that co-created phenomenon of the relationship, which is, you know, we have me, we have you, and then we have this thing we create together called the relationship. Fonagy calls that intersubjectivity, and that terminology has been generally adopted. So there's an intersubjective quality to all of this. And the relationship really precedes the me. The relational stuff happens first and is actually a foundation for the self. 
The relationship precedes the me. Yes, you don't have an understanding of me without having it reflected by another. That's right. The I has subjectivity, and kind of me kind of has subjectivity. And the I is, again, back to that more spontaneous primary affects that eventually gets developed. The I gets, you know, grows into other things. But initially, it is sort of just subjectivity and a wash with feeling states. The way Fonagy puts this is that the meaning of affect, to get to the point where it can mean something to us, we basically have to integrate the representations of affect in self and mother. So you have this feeling that washes over you, and then you have your perception of the response and the, and the mother where she mirrors, again, to use that word, but what she's mirroring back is not just what you just gave her, but it, it's something of that affect, the distress, but also with other, what Fonagy calls a complex affect, I think other bits and pieces of different sorts of emotions that'll be soothing, and that'll give it this symbolic quality. So for instance, later on in life, if you're distressed by an idea, it'll feel, well, it's just an idea and it's something that can be coped with, or it's just a feeling. But if you don't have this ability to sort of modulate it or make it symbolic, then it becomes a real threat. I'm about to die. I have a panic attack. There's something really, really threatening about to happen to me because I don't have that ability to do that. To be able to label our affects, understand them, and ultimately regulate them. In the beginning, it has to be integrated with my perception of the response of another. And then ultimately, I internalize that so I can be the other who's responding to myself. But that's just one example of the way in which the relationship sort of precedes the self, let's say. The reason all this material is so relevant today is, and Shore says this explicitly in one of his articles, which is that really the primary issue clinically today is affect dysregulation. The reason addicts go to drugs is they can't regulate their affect states, and they find an external means to do so. And the primary reason we're seeing so much affect dysregulation is adverse childhood experiences, trauma, and that's all worked out. Again, if you're interested, that's in the Shore article. I did not recommend you guys Stephen Porges' material on the vagus nerve and the vagal theory, where he starts to work out some of the, really, the weeds of the biology of how this dissociative mechanism works and how the brain uses social interaction as a way of building affects and all the stuff we're talking about here. That's really into the weeds, but if anyone who's interested, that's Stephen Porges. And again, the reason this is relevant is that it's the primary clinical issue we're dealing with today, and how then to repair that becomes almost every clinician's sort of uh, task. Well, say what you mean by dissociation. There's different kinds of dissociation. If you saw the movie... Um, Ernest Saves Christmas? No, no. Uh, Oh, the the African-American girl that's being horribly abused. Anyway, they do a great job of cinematically representing dissociation where you literally go out of body. You dissociate from reality. You can see yourself floating over things or you disconnect from your affects. You disconnect from your body. You can even disconnect from reality. There's different kinds of dissociative mechanisms. And it's mediated through a very powerful biology that's thought to be primarily the vagus nerve mediated. It's how the body deals with the impossible. We have a fight-or-flight response, we fight against things, but when it becomes clear that we can't escape, we go into a parasympathetic-dominated shutdown, and early in life, part of that shutdown creates these dissociative mechanisms in the brain where we literally wall off parts of ourselves, parts of our feeling states, and parts of our body, and then that stays that way. Although those pieces never enter consciousness, they do stay there and motivate behavior and affects, and the patient is unaware of where that's all coming from. They just know they don't feel good or they don't understand their behavior. That's when they come to treatment. Or then they go to drugs, and that's when they come to treatment. 
It's an inability to represent one's affect to oneself, in a sense. It's a failure of integration, ultimately. The brain is supposed to be an integrated whole, and this literally disintegrates parts of the brain and the body from itself. So we just finished this Buddhism episode where we're talking about how the goal is to look at different painful things and purposefully dissociate from them and say, those are not me, those don't even really matter. I can't help but think, you know, in listening to this kind of account that either you're really just pretending when you're doing that kind of thing in supposed, you know, Buddhist deconstruction of the self, or at least you have to have a healthy integration before you start going in and messing with the details and taking less ownership of certain things. But you're certainly not purposefully doing, and you probably couldn't purposefully do this kind of dissociation that you're talking about. No, you can't. And not only that, but it's been my experience that there is simply no way to access that material other than entering back into an intersubjective space. Your brain can't do it for some reason. And so I've never seen anybody really reintegrate without first developing that safe holding intrasubjective context that we're exploring in the Fonagy paper. Meaning a therapeutic relationship with another person. Or romantic, because that's the other modern upshot is, hey, would you like to be in an intersubjective dyad with me, baby? People try that. It doesn't always go well. It doesn't work. (laughs) Romantic ends up just being a traumatic reenactment because we pick people that fit with our templates. And our templates, if they're traumatic, will necessarily attach to somebody that will oblige us by re-traumatizing us. It makes sense that people would move to drugs or alcohol or other kinds of ways to deal with these kinds of pains. It would also seem that you end up generating other problems that are even rooted in the biology of addiction itself, so that there's a psychological component that maybe you start using drugs to deal with, and then you get saddled with a biological component as well. 100%. The families always go, after I lecture them about what the biology of addiction is, they go, okay, I understand he can't stop, but why did he start? Why did he start? You know, it's like, well, that's why he started. He couldn't regulate, he found a solution, and then he triggered a second problem we call addiction. Well, I still think you could put it in your OkCupid profile, like, help me regulate my affect. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't re-traumatize me. (laughs) All right, well, that sounds like a good place to stop part one. Folks should come back next week to hear part two of the discussion or become a partially examined life citizen and hear it right now. We had an unbroken, more or less conversation here. Why don't you listen to it in the way that God intended? See ya.